You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2012. Today's episode is titled, The Limit of Common Grace. Given that we live as invited guests in God's creation, it follows that to live well, one must live according to God's rules. This sounds simple enough except for one problem, sin. The first humans, Adam and Eve, were placed in the Garden of Eden and given one rule which they chose to disregard. And because one of God's principles is reproduction after your own kind, Genesis 1.24, the sin of Adam and Eve not only impacted them, but their heirs as well. Therefore, the ability for humans to obey God is impaired by sin. It is unclear how effectively a person can build an organization with people living in rebellion against God and functioning on common grace. But we know there is a limit. A wiser way to build organizations is to build with people who are living under the grace of Christ. These people are empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey God's will and ways, and therefore will enjoy the blessings that flow from obedience. Wise managers recognize their responsibility to build multi-generationally and will not seek to build with people living under the limitations of common grace. Rather, they will seek to build with people living according to the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, The Financial Crisis, The Role of Values in Regulation. Well, greetings to all of you. It's good to see you. I'm delighted to be with you this morning. I feel a little bit inadequate to follow up Lakita Wright. That was outstanding, and she's clearly a very gifted communicator. I think my act here is to do what she said she wouldn't do. She said she would not make you suffer. I think my job is to make you suffer. So I I apologize in advance, but I will try to make it as painless as possible. But we want to face reality. Does anybody want reality? Are we aware that God is in reality? And so if that's where God is, I hope that's where we want to go. So today we're going to talk about the financial world in crisis and specifically the role of values and regulation. Now there's an assumption that's made about values that I find few people talk about. And it showed up this week when Dr. Robert Jeffries, a pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, was interviewed by Fox News. And the anchors on Fox News were very anxious to trip him up. So they started making accusations about things that he said. Well, he is a very accomplished speaker and apologist. So when he got the opportunity, he clarified and said, I did not say what you said I said. In fact, what they are accusing him of is basically saying he couldn't vote for Mitt Romney because Mitt was a Mormon. And Dr. Jeffrey says, I didn't say that. What I was talking about was the theological differences between what I believe biblical Christianity is and what I believe Mormonism is. And his comment was, they are different. They are not the same. And therefore, I do not hold that Mormonism is Christian. And so that was the fundamental essence of their discussion. But from there, he went on to comment on the question about whether or not he would vote for a Mormon, given that there were theological differences. His comment was, if I'm given a choice between a man who professes to be a Christian, who is President Obama, who doesn't appear to adopt biblical values, and a man who professes to be a Mormon, whom I regard as not a Christian, who seems to embrace more of the biblical values, then I'm going to vote for the Mormon over the professing Christian. So that was his comment. Now, what he didn't say 
And what I wanted so badly, I, I wanted to have a conversation right there. It was Sunday morning. Right, I was getting ready to go to our church service. And I wanted to say, hey, can we talk about this? Because you've made an assumption here. Those of you that heard Paul Jaley speak very briefly yesterday, you heard him talk about presuppositions. We all make presuppositions. These are assumptions about reality. And the most fundamental assumption is about God and who he is and therefore how his universe works. You do know we are invited guests into his universe. Is everybody clear on that? So if we are invited guests into his universe, then he's made all the rules. And why would we think we can make up the rules? Yet we seem to act that way. So anyway, what happened here was this wonderful pastor who is a very good theologian made an assumption that a person could embrace values that are reflected in Scripture and had the power to actually walk that out. Now that is called the assumption of human potency. Has anyone heard that assumption before? Human potency? That is the fundamental assumption of humanism. That is a humanistic assumption. Now, I am not criticizing the pastor at all. I'm just simply saying he made that assumption. I don't think he thought about it. To assume that someone can embrace a biblical truth and then has the power in and of themselves to walk that out, to me, is a false assumption, is a non-biblical assumption. Because Scripture tells me that every thought and intention of my heart is only evil. And the ability that anyone has... To line up with God at any level has to come from God. Now, by his grace, we have a a concept called common grace. Are you familiar with common grace? If you're familiar with that concept, raise your hand. For those that are not familiar with it, let me just tell you what it is. Theologians have looked out there and said, you know what's interesting? That people in rebellion against God seem to have the ability to do certain things that line up with Scripture. Like some pagan can be nice. You know, a pagan can actually serve you food and not poison the food. That's a nice thing, isn't it? You know, they can shake your hand and say nice things to you. Well, why is it that a pagan can do that? Well, this is called common grace. God grants grace to everyone on a very low level to obey him on simple things. That's called common grace. Now, common grace only goes so far. For example, you go to the very last book, I believe it's the book of Hosea. I believe that's the book. I'm going to look it up real quickly. There's a very interesting text there that tells us that common grace only goes so far. I'm going to read it to you. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. You hear what he's saying? What he's saying is the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious, who are obviously trying to walk in some level of this, stumble in them. So your ability to obey God as an unbeliever, as a rebellious person, is limited. That's Hosea chapter 14, verse 9, if you're interested. So what we have to realize is we're talking about values, biblical values. If you do not know Christ... You have only limited ability to obey those values. You do not have the fullness. If you know Jesus Christ, you now have the Holy Spirit and you have the power of the Spirit to enable you. So you're not dependent on a self-perceived human potency. You now have the power of the Holy Spirit to now enable you and drive you into obedience. You hear the difference? This is very important, I think, that we get this. 
By the way, this wasn't in my notes. So this doesn't count against my time, does it, Catherine? <laughs> this was free. All right, I'm going to set my timer here so I will be through on time. I want to be a good steward here. All right, here we go. I wanted to say that because I think it's so misunderstood, even in the Christian world, the reality that we can grab God's truth and we can walk it out without him. We think we can do that. And we Christians give unbelievers the idea they can, just like Dr. Jeffries did. And I think if he were here talking about it, he would immediately recognize it. And he'd say, guys, I didn't mean to imply that. I didn't realize I implied it. And you need to understand, I don't believe in human potency. I hope nobody here believes in that. Because if you do, that's fundamentally driving you to humanism. All right, I want to start with a story. About a week or two ago, one of the leaders of our church called me. And he started telling me a story. And this is a man that I've been walking with for about, oh, almost 20 years now. And we know each other very well, have a great relationship, and lean upon each other. He said, you know, I've got a man that I'm discipling. And by the way, that's the mark of a true disciple is they disciple others. Okay, so he was discipling someone. He says, this man's in, in financial trouble. I said, what's happening? He said, well, he's working two jobs, was, one, was not able to make ends meet. And so he began to use payday loans. Y'all know what payday loans are? Where you go and you get money in advance. They're basically loan you money against your paycheck that you're going to get on Friday. Well, the default rate on payday loans is pretty high, so the interest rate is high. So what happened was he was getting his payday loans trying to get his way out of a mess. Well, he just got deeper and deeper into a mess. And so he got online and started looking for ways to consolidate his debt. He's got all these loans out there paying all this interest. He's just sinking and sinking. I need a loan here that will consolidate them all and bring everything into a monthly payment that I can afford. And so he found a site, and he went through the registration process. And by the way, he didn't get any counsel. A little clue for you. No counsel at all. And one of the things they said, okay, well, you're approved, but you've got to send us three months' payments in advance. You see something here? Another clue? Well, this is a scam. And he sent his three months payments in, and of course the money never came, and the loan consolidation didn't happen, and so now he's even deeper in the hole. Well, may I suggest this is a picture of what's happening in the world today? You consider that? This happens. We try to solve debt problems with debt. Now, you think about that. That just sounds ridiculous. Why would you do that? Well, partially because that's the way the world is thinking. Let me just give you some examples here. There is a world debt clock associated with the sovereign debt of the world. Does everybody understand sovereign debt? That is the debt of nation at the nation level. Most of us know about debt at the personal level, but there's sovereign debt at the nation level. According to the debt clock, the total sovereign debt of the nations is $45 trillion, or approaching $45 trillion. 27% of that is the U.S., now, the U.S. only has 4.5% of the world's population, but we have 27% of the world's debt. Now, this is just the sovereign debt. We're not talking about all the underlying debt beneath that. Okay? I mean, whatever state you're in, your state's probably in debt. Okay? So it doesn't include that. And it doesn't include all these unfunded liabilities, which, I mean, who knows how much that is. I did some research on that, and I got numbers anywhere from in the U.S. from $60 trillion to $200 trillion, depending on who's doing the calculations and what assumptions they make. But you know what all these unfunded liabilities are? Well, 
here's just some of them. I don't know that we know them all, but some of them are like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. How about all the pensions for, you know, former government officials, congressmen, senators, bureaucrats? How about all the military pensions? And then you have all the state government and all of their pensions. It just trickles on down. The debt is just massive. And from a business standpoint, is there any businessman that would run their business like the governments are run? I mean, it's ridiculous. You, you say, why are we electing these people that seem to have no sense about how to steward resources? Well, to me, it's a massive, massive problem. It's leading to a showdown. Now, this is a chart that came from the world, the sovereign debt clock. And this is the year 2000. You can see this is the, the global sovereign debt in trillions of dollars. You know, which um, trillion dollars is nothing today. But you see, we're below 20 trillion, pretty low. But you see where we've gone in a decade. We're now approaching over 45 trillion, not including all of these unrecognized liabilities, what uh, accountants would call off-balance sheet liability. Isn't that what you'd call it, Jack? It's off-balance sheet. It's not on the balance sheet, but it's a real liability. And by the way, that's what got Enron in trouble. You don't remember Enron? Was all their off-balance sheet shenanigans. Well, do we learn anything? Can we learn anything from history? We're running quickly into a hole. Now, how are we trying to get out of this? At least, you know, as you look at Europe, you're watching the Eurozone, their crisis, you see they're trying to deal with some of their problems. And you can see we've already had some major issues, like with Iceland. Okay, Iceland wound up with a collapsed banking system. Are you aware of that? Two of the banks actually were liquidated. One of them was nationalized. These are their biggest banks in Iceland. And it was because of these issues here. $14 billion in debt, which meant the debt per person was 43000 a person. The debt per GDP was 125%. There's more debt than the output of the country. That's not a good thing. Then you have Greece. You've been, Greece has been in the news recently. They've got $374 billion, which is $34,000 per person, and their debt to GDP is 128%. Now, the reason for the Greek crisis, supposedly, from what I've read is the Greek people wanted more money, but they didn't want to work harder. And so they voted themselves politicians that would give them this. And so that's why they wound up digging their hole. And so now they've got forced austerity, whether they like it or not. And by the way, I just read the other day that the suicide rate in Greece has jumped 40% in the last year. 40%. You got Italy right behind them there. You can see they're at $2 trillion in debt. That's 38000 a person, 118% of their GDP, and they have the highest in the Eurozone. So they're on the precipice of the same thing that's going on in Greece. And then you have Japan. I haven't heard anybody talk about Japan. It's stunning with Japan. Japan is at 205% of their GDP. You say, whoa, man, what's going on here? What's well, a ticking time bomb? And the U.S. is, we're cruising right up behind them. And we're not even talking about it. Our focus is on making people feel that they're prosperous, not on the reality of what prosperity really is. So the U.S. is a ticking time bomb as well. So what are the proposed solutions? How are we approaching this? Well, we're basically doing what we normally do, thinking short term. What do we need to do right now? Well, loan forbearance, reduced interest rates, debt forgiveness, extended payment terms, more debt. These are the kinds of things that the Eurozone did with Greece. Isn't that interesting? 
The worldly thinking is always about using debt to solve debt problems. Does anybody see a problem with that? Has anybody heard any discussion about, hey, why are we using debt to solve debt problems? There's not any conversation at that level because we're all short-term thinkers. Well, let me ask you this. What would it look like if we were a long-term thinker? What would that look like? And what changes would be needed in people to think long-term? Wouldn't it be a good question? If we're going to really solve the problems for the long-term, you know, are you concerned about the problems we're handing off to our children and grandchildren? Is anybody concerned about that? That grieves me greatly. I have, soon I will have three grandsons. I've got two now and one in the cooker. And I'm concerned for them. I'm concerned about the state of the world that we're going to hand off to them. Massive, massive problems. It seems to me that we ought to be making the sacrifices to try to begin to put the the fixes in place. And by the way, these fixes aren't going to happen overnight. These are going to be long-term things that have got to fundamentally change. Just suppose we did something simple. Suppose we balanced the budget in Washington. Could we do that? Could we have the courage to do that? Would we make the sacrifices to do that? Just balance the budget so we just stop the increased debt. What if we took the next step? What if we began to have a plan where we actually paid down the debt? More sacrifice. Are we willing to do that? Or is our comfort, pleasure, and convenience too important to us? We're not willing to sacrifice and do what we need to do for the sake of our children and grandchildren, much less thinking about the kingdom of God. So what's it going to take for us to begin to think long-term? Well, I think what we have to do is understand why we are here. Why are we here? Well, my suggestion is we're here because we have bad thinking. We have bad worldviews. So let me, let me just, just talk a minute about how the universe works. And I want to continue the introductory story back to my friend who gave me the call and told me about the guy with the payday loans. What he said to me that made me so proud of him. I mean, I was just beaming with pride. I've invested a lot in this man over the years. We spent a lot of time together, did a lot of training, teaching. And he said to me, he says, the problem with this guy is he's got bad theology. I said, you are right. That's the problem. The problem in Washington, D.C. is bad theology. The problem in any company that's facing these kinds of issues is on some level is bad theology. If you're facing them in your personal life, there's bad theology going on. Now, can we go there? Can we imagine that? That's a stretch for most of us because most of us think, well, what's theology got to do with money? We don't see the connection. So what, are the, what I want to do with most of the rest of my time is to try to make that connection for you in the Scriptures. If I make it in the Scriptures, do you think you might believe it? I hope so. Well, that's really the only reason to believe it if you see it in Scripture. But first I want to make a comment here about Rick Santorum. I watched some of the debates, not all of the debates, But one of them that I watched was the one in Florida where at the end of the debate, a female lawyer stood up and asked the question, how does your view of religion, I think that's how she put it, how does your religion inform your public policy decisions? And so the various candidates were answering the questions, pretty Casper Milktoast kind of answers, you know. And then Rick Santorum said something so profound that I nearly fell out of my chair. He said, theology is everything. I said, did I just hear what I heard? Stop, back that up. Would you say that again? 
He did it on the recording, on the replay. You know, even Aggies have figured out you don't bet on the replay. You know? But he did it again. Theology is everything. I mean, I was so stunned. And so that inspired me to write a letter. So I wrote an open letter to Rick Santorum. And it's posted on my website if you're interested. But I commended him for this, and I then began to talk about what that meant. How do you walk that out? And so far, he's not responded. By the way, Dennis, I don't know if you know, Bob Crawford is working for him? Yes. Yeah, Bob showed up at my church here a few weeks ago, and I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And so he's working for Rick Santorum. And uh, I told him about my letter. He was going to get the letter to Rick. So I'm hopeful that Rick has a chance to see it. But this was, to me, was one of the few comments that I have ever heard from any public official that said, this guy has got some worldview thinking going on that's pretty sound. I don't know what he means by that in detail. I don't know how deeply he understands what he said, but what he said was very foundational because he recognized the truth of Genesis 1-1. It's a truth that every one of us must face. In the beginning, God. Any questions? <laughs> What's prior to in the beginning? What is before in the beginning? What is more important than in the beginning? Give me a foundation other than in the beginning. You see, the beginning is the beginning. It's the starting point. It's the seminal idea. You have to start with God in your thinking about everything. Even Paul, when he was talking to the Athenians, he was making this point to these great philosophers, these people that spent nothing but their time every day looking at various philosophical thoughts. And so as he's talking to them about the unknown God, he says, for in him, that is in God, we live and move and have our being. Now you think about this. In him, in God, we live and move and have our existence. You see, everything goes back to him. It doesn't matter what you do in your life. Your business is founded on your theology. Your marriage is founded on your theology. Okay? Your parenting is founded on your theology. Your church is founded on your theology. Your community is based on the theology of the community. It all goes to theology. Now, sadly, most of us don't have very sound theology. And all you have to do is look at the marriages and look at the businesses and look at the kids and look at the communities and look at the churches. And these reflect non-biblical thinking to a large degree. So the reason the world is in a financial crisis is a lack of understanding of how the universe works and specifically what drives results. My thesis is this. The world is progressively rejecting Christ, which means we've lost our ethical compass, which means that public policy is increasingly disconnected from Christ, who is the beginning. We are disconnecting from the very foundation. What would happen, those of you that know something about construction, what happens when the foundation of a building disconnects from the building. It's not going to stand. And so it is with us. It is with our organizations, our culture. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're disconnected from Christ, you do not have a solid foundation to build with. It will not go well. All right, so what drives results? Spiritual reality drives physical reality. How many of you have heard that before? Are you awake? Am I boring you? Are you suffering enough? Just want to be sure if you're suffering enough, okay? It's my job to make you suffer. By the way, did you know, according to Peter, you are called to suffering? Did you know that? Paul said it too. Both of them said it. 
It's been granted to you, said the Apostle Paul, not only to believe in Christ, but to also suffer for his sake. That's part of our privilege is to suffer for Christ. Now, you don't have to go out and look for it. It'll find you. You just have to be prepared that when it comes, you can walk in it like Paul and Silas did in, in Acts 16. Remember Acts 16? Where they're beat it, they're arrested. This is a marketplace thing, guys. They're arrested. They're stripped. They're beaten. They're starved. Thrown into the dungeon. They've been there for no how many hours. It's cold. I'm sure they're hungry and thirsty. And what are they doing? Now, I don't know about you, but what I'd be doing, I'd say, Lord, do you understand that what I'm doing for you, all the great things that I'm doing for you, I'm, you know, all the people I'm touching and all that, and why are you doing this to me? That's what we'd be doing. They're down there singing praises to God in the midst of their pain. Now, see, that's what we have to get prepared for. And that's one of the marks of maturity is when we can sing in the midst of the suffering, when we can pray in the midst of the suffering. By the way, when that happens, guess what? All those unbelievers around you, they're mesmerized. That's what went on in that jail that night. It's midnight. You know, that's back in the day when people went to sleep when the sun went down. You know, we, today we, we're night owls. But back then they went to sleep when the sun went down. But they're up now, deep into the night, because they're mesmerized by something that's so strange they'd never seen it before. People living like we've never seen people live like this. This is how we are supposed to live. Okay, so spiritual reality drives physical reality. This is one of the key principles taught in the school. You've already heard it in this conference. This means that everything begins with theology. So how do we connect theology to results? It's a great question, isn't it? How do we make that connection? So I'm going to give you some suggested thoughts okay, about how this works. Number one is theology drives philosophy. Theology drives philosophy. The Marxist philosophy is based on atheism. Okay? That's how it works. Philosophy drives your values. Values are, are traits that reflect what you believe is the way to live wisely in the universe. Philosophy is about living wisely. Values are then are inculcated into principles. Principles are expressed in practices. Practices drive results. So I think that's the way it works. Now I'm going to show that to you in the book of Colossians in a minute, but let me just give you an illustration, an example of this that might be helpful to you. Suppose that your view of God is that God rewards those who seek him. Do you know that is a biblical concept of God? You can find that in Hebrews 11 verse 6. So one expression of that philosophically might be to receive God's rewards, seek to align with God. Makes sense, doesn't it? We're in God's universe, we're invited guests, and the only thing that we can expect that's going to work is that which lines up with him. So alignment with him will facilitate the rewards that God was going to give. So one of the values that we might express would be alignment. And so if alignment is with God is important, then we need a principle here to express that. So how about obeying the greatest commandments? That's a pretty good principle, isn't it? Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your spirit. And love your neighbors yourself. Two great commandments. Okay? So how do I practice that? Well, one of the ways you may practice that is encourage others with sound doctrine. Love expressed by alignment. Now, let me just make a quick comment. Do I have time? Very quickly. Encouragement. What is encouragement? Now, most of us think 
Encouragement is making you feel good about something that's going on in your life that you think is bad. Isn't that right? You're hurting, you're in pain, you're struggling, you're frustrated, you're upset. So we want to encourage you to feel better. That's not biblical. Are you awake? You hearing what I'm saying? This is important. Titus tells us how, what encouragement is. The word for encouragement is the word parakaleo. That's a compound word. Para, we get parallel from. Kaleo means to call. So it means to come along somebody and call them up. And the text says, I parakaleo with sound doctrine, which means sound theology. So if I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to come alongside you. And if I see bad theology, I'm going to offer to you better theology, hopefully sound theology, and help encourage you to line up with sound theology. Now, that's what real encouragement is. Now, that may mean sometimes it doesn't feel good. It may put you under conviction, but that's okay because real encouragement is about alignment with the will and ways of God. So that's a practice here that stems from this view of God, this philosophy, this value, these principles. Well, what happens now when I begin to live this way and I begin to encourage alignment with the will and ways of God? Well, guess what? That's what I have. I'm suddenly lining up with what God is all about. So you see how this works? Convince me. Yeah, yeah. All right. I mean, I'm not like Lakita, but I do like a little feedback, you know, you know. I'm not asking for amen. Just, just say yes or no is fine. Okay. All right. Okay. Now I want to show it to you. I want to show it to you in the book of Colossians. Okay? So let's take a look, and we're going to answer the question as we go along. How do we get out of the mess? Is that a good thing to know? How do we get out of this mess? Well, bad theology got us in it. So what do you think it's going to take to get us out? Good theology is a way out. And so we can embrace good theology. It means we have a way out. You know, we're not in a no-win situation. Don't go walk away and oh, boy, we're in a ditch. There's no way out. No, that's, that is a lie. That's bad theology. Good theology is we always have a way out. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Turn to Christ. Embrace the truth. That's always the solution. Okay, so return to a biblical standard, an external ethical compass based on Christ. Now, the reason I put external ethical compass is because humanism is so prominent today, and humanism is all about me being my own ethical standard. So it's an internal compass to the humanist. No, the truth is the only correct ethical standard is Christ. Let me give you R.C. Sproul's definition of, of morals and ethics. I think it's a great definition. It's the best one I've seen. It's very simple. He says, ethics is what ought to be. Very good. What ought to be is that which lines up with Christ, his will and his ways. Those are ethics. Morals are what you actually do. And for all of us, there's a gap between our morals and our ethics. And so the challenge is, can we bridge that gap? Change our morals. Don't change your ethics. Change the morals to line up with Christ. That's the solution. That's the way out. Okay, so the starting point here is sound theology. And the only basis for sound theology is Christ. Christ alone is Lord and the only basis for living. Now, Lakita referred to pluralism. She didn't use the term, but you probably saw the concept. She also implied universalism. Now, how many of you know what those terms mean? Who knows what pluralism is? Other than front row. Front row can't answer. Okay. Some of you know. 
Pluralism, no, universalism is many ways to God. Pluralism is the acceptance of all worldviews. That's pluralism. You need to know this. This is a politically correct philosophy today. It is not biblical. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to God except through Christ. So universalism is false. Pluralism is false. So anytime you hold up the banner of Christ is the only way, you will be regarded as out of date, maybe called bigoted, old-fashioned. You're unqualified to even vote because you don't think clearly enough. So you need to be prepared. We've got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in terms of handling these battles. But universalism, pluralism are very prominent. And the kissing cousin is syncretism. Syncretism is finding value in all worldviews. Okay, we need to be familiar with these terms because they're in our culture. And if we don't know them, those that don't know Christ know them. We need to know them. We need to be relevant. We need to be able to de deal with these issues. Okay, Christ alone is Lord and the only basis for living. It says here in Colossians 1, 16 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. He is the agent of creation. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and powers, rulers and authorities, all things were created by him and for him. You see, he is the origin and he is the ultimate end. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the glue that holds it together in the process. It's all about Christ. Your existence, what you're called to do, everything in life is about Christ. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It all begins with him. This is the sound theology you must start with. If you don't start with Christ, then you will have a flawed foundation in your life. And you will build on something that ultimately will not be sustained. So that's number one. We have to get Christ at the center. Now we go into chapter two of Colossians. And what we're going to see is now the philosophy. Chapter two, I'm going to read verses two and three. By the way, this is Paul speaking to his spiritual grandchildren. The people at Colossae he has never met. The person that brought the gospel to Colossae was apparently Epaphras. And apparently Epaphras was part of that 12-man discipleship program that Paul conducted in Ephesus during his last missionary journey. That was a two-year program. They met every day for two years with the Apostle Paul. Now, you want to know a seminary? That was probably a seminary. That was probably training that none of us has ever even come close to seeing. But what happened, uh, those 12 men got so infected with the message of the kingdom. And by the way, if you look at Acts 19, it talks about Paul's gospel was the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was teaching them. And so they got so infected with the gospel of the kingdom that they went on assignments where Paul had been forbidden to go, and they spread the gospel through all of Asia. Epaphras apparently went to Colossae. And so he has brought the message there. And so Epaphras is the father. Paul is the grandfather. So the grandfather is writing. Don't you like it when your grandfather writes you? Isn't it good stuff? Well, the grandfather's writing good stuff here. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may know the full riches of complete understanding. Would you like that? Would you like the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ? in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now let me ask you a question. Anybody here have a problem? You got a problem? Raise your hand. 
Okay, a number of you have no problems. Those of you who have no problems, we're going to have you up here, and you're going to pray over people afterwards. Okay? Okay, we'll see how many come up. Okay? We all have problems. What do you need? You need knowledge and wisdom to deal with that problem, don't you? Know what you need? Let me offer you a definition. This came from Dr. Bruce Walkie. Dr. Bruce Walkie is one of the prominent Old Testament scholars of our time. Dr. Walkie says that knowledge is an understanding of how the universe works, an understanding of how God created the universe to work. That's a good definition, isn't it? That would be knowledge. Wisdom is now the skill to use that knowledge to live well, to make right decisions. Now, if you had knowledge and wisdom, do you think you might be able to solve your problem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Where does that come from? Christ. He is the source of wisdom and knowledge. He is the repository of wisdom and knowledge. All right, now the warning is there's going to be all kinds of efforts to distract you philosophically so that you don't embrace Christ and his wisdom and knowledge. You're going to have fine-sounding arguments of the world, and they're going to basically built on deceptive philosophy. Look what verse 8 says. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. You see, the world is offering us their ideas of in the beginning. You see, everybody starts with something. What's your starting point? I wish that we would make everyone that ever wrote anything or speak to tell us the answer to the question, what is in the beginning to you? Okay? Let's know. I want to know what the starting point is for your thinking. I just want to know where you're coming from. Well, we don't do that. We, we hide all that. I was trained in a, a prominent university in this country as a scientist. I went all the way through the Ph.D. level. And I didn't know until 10 years after I got my degree that I was trained by naturalists. Now, you know what a naturalist is? A naturalist is somebody who believes that the only reality is natural reality. Every phenomena in the natural, it must find an explanation in the natural. There's no spiritual reality out there. There's no God. There's no forces from God. There's no intervention from God. That doesn't exist. So I was trained by these naturalists, and they never told me they were naturalists. I even had one professor who was a professing Christian, and he never told me that he really was a naturalist. Well, you know, really, really was, was a deist. Okay? A deist is somebody who believes that God exists, but he doesn't believe God's engaged. So fundamentally, a naturalist and a deist, practically, they look the same, even though technically they are different. So this is the base principles of the world. If you've been trained, as I was, by professors that are naturalists, they probably never told you that. This is basic principles of the world. It is not a foundation. It is not a foundation that you can build on. It is a flawed foundation. All right, let's go on to values. We're going into chapter 3. Chapter 1 was theology, chapter 2 was philosophy, chapter 3 is now values. In fact, we're going to start values, principles, and practices in chapter 3. Okay, so in chapter 3, we have this statement here in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other, forgive each other. For if whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive us the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, and virtues is another word for values, all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. So what he's telling us here is the highest value 
is love. Now, if we're good students of Scripture, we say, hey, I knew that. Where do we know that? From 1 Corinthians 13, didn't we? You have faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. By the way, if you look back in Colossians chapter 1 to the introductory comments that Paul makes before he goes into his prayer, he comments, I have heard of your faith, hope, and love. You see, those are the marks to him of genuine Christians. Do you have faith, hope, and love? Of course, love is the highest. And love is the seminal value, so all of the values come from love. Now, let's define love. Love is not an emotion. Now, that's what we th- most of us think it's an emotion. It's not an emotion. The word for love in English is singular. That is, there's one, one word. But in Greek, there are three words for love. The first word, the lowest love, is the, the sexual love, erotic love. Eros is the word. The second word is philios. We get the word Philadelphia from that. That's brotherly love. Okay? The third and highest form of love is agape. Agape love is sacrificial living. It's doing what's in your highest good, that is bringing alignment with the will and ways of God in your life, no matter what it costs me. Do you hear that? It isn't what it costs you, it's what it costs me to help you experience something of alignment with the will and ways of God. Agape love fundamentally is sacrifice. You hear that? It's not an emotional thing. It may not feel good at all. For God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son to die. Agape love there was expressed in death. So this is the seminal value, is love. Okay, so how do we walk out this seminal value of love and all the implications of that? How do we do that? Well, we need principles, don't we? Well, values are expressed in principles. And here, to me, is the seminal principle. Colossians 3.17. It says this, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, you say, okay, all right, what's he saying here? Well, just take a look at the words here. Whatever you do in word, that word there, I didn't put that in here, but it's the Greek word logos. You've been, had enough teaching that you know what logos means. Jesus was the logos, wasn't he? It's the word for word. And the word deed here is the Greek word ergon. Now, ergon is the general word for work. Now, if you're a dualist, you'll read this verse one way. If you're a holist, you'll read it another way. It's very important that you get clear what your hermeneutic is. Okay? So if you're a dualist, it's real easy. Whatever you do in word or deed, indeed, now I define that to just refer to things that I regard to be Christian things. You know, mission trips and, you know, helping the poor and the orphans and, you know, supporting my church, tithing and doing things like that. Those are good deeds. See, that's how a dualist would do it. But the Greek word there, ergon, refers to all kinds of work. It's not limited to what we call Christian good deeds. You see, what he's saying is Jesus was a holist. Are we clear on that? That everything in his life was about Christ. So whatever you do in word or deed, that is whatever work you do, whatever God has called you to do, how do you do that? You do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, the name of the Lord Jesus is anybody that works in his name is his representative. If you are representing the president of the United States and you're going to go call on somebody, what do you say to them when you walk in the door? Here, I'm representing the president of the United States. Isn't that what you say? Now, when you go to work in the morning and you show up for duty, do you walk into your boss and say, I'm representing the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, we don't do that, do we? No. That's a foreign thought. Well, in foreign to Scripture, Scripture says that's how you're supposed to work. I actually give my clients a gift. Some of my clients that are here, do you recognize this? If you recognize it, your client of mine, raise your hand. Okay, number you recognize it. Okay, so somebody want to tell others what it is? Huh? Anybody want? You're going to make me tell them? Okay, I'm going to tell them. This is a stamp, okay? And this stamp is based on this verse right here. It says, this work performed in the name of the Lord Jesus, based on this text right here. And what I do is I tell them, okay, you can take this and you can use it as an actual stamp where you can get an ink pad, blot the ink pad, and put it on letters, put it on invoices, put it on memos, put it on your computer screen, whatever you want to do. Or you can just leave it there as, as, as something symbolic on your desk, and you look at it every time you do anything. You have a conversation, you write a letter, you work a spreadsheet, you know, you're in a meeting, whatever. Look at that stamp and say, did I represent Christ? I was his man or woman in that particular situation. Can I put the stamp on it? I think this is a powerful visual reminder. It reminds me. I hope it reminds you. This is the seminal principle right here. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter where you're working, in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in public policy, education, wherever you're working, if you don't see yourself as an emissary or representative of Christ, then you're not working according to this principle. This is what love looks like. This is love in action, is being his representative in whatever situation God's assigned you to. Okay, so let's talk about some practices, because Colossians 3 begins to talk about practices. It flows right into the practices. Now see, most of you are saying, well, gee, I've been waiting for this the whole time. Just tell me how to do it. That's all we want to know is how to do it. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, I did a leadership seminar a couple weeks ago, and it was a three-session seminar. I spent the first session at a very high level sharing what basically most of the world thinks about leadership, going through various pundits and their thoughts and you know, their ideas, and concluding, showing how none of these leadership principles are really firmly grounded in Christ. The problem was several of the participants in the seminar said, you know, that was a waste of time. You know, just tell us, how, tell us what to do. We want some action items. Well, see, the problem is you don't understand what life is all about. Life is about getting grounded in Christ, and you have to understand theology or you will never live well. By the way, the people that made that comment, I made note of them, not to critique them, but just I noted them, many of them I had known for a long time, and I've seen virtually no growth in them. The people that are growing recognize that theology is foundational. So let me just give you some examples of practices. First of all, wives. This gets real personal quickly. You know, Paul doesn't, he doesn't try to make you feel good here. He's going to jump right into this. Wives, recognize this. You have been assigned a husband by God. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. God has placed you in that situation. He says submit. And the word for submit is the word hupo, tasso. Hupo means to be under. Tasso is to place. You've been placed under that person. And you are called to realize that is the divine covenant. So that's one of the ways you practice agape love. It's how you practice living based on Christ. It's how you practice wisdom and knowledge based on Christ. It's how you practice agape love. And it's how you practice the principle of doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus as you live submitted to your husband. No eggs? Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, usually that'll get some, some eggs. All right. How about husbands? Oh, you think you're getting off, guys? <laughs> Guess what? 
You don't get off at all. He says, husbands, love. Not the Eros, not the Philadelphia, agape. Sacrificially, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That means my wife frequently reminds me of this. When I encourage her to submit, she reminds me to die. So I restrain from encouraging her to submit because I know what's coming then. So husbands, love your wives. Agape, love your wives. Children, now that we have a few children here, we have, they're supposed to obey. And this is the word, hupo akuo. Hupo is under. What's akuo? Do you recognize akuo? Acoustics. We hearing. In other words, get under your parents and listen to them. Do you know being a child or a spiritual child is an easy way to live? Because finding the will of ways of God is real simple. You simply do what the parent or the tells you to do. That's all you got to do. It's really simple. Now, the problem is the rebellion in us. This works, by the way, of spiritual children. You know, you should have spiritual parents in your life. And you need to hupo akuo, get underneath them, listen, do what they tell you to do, because you know that is the will of God for your life. All right, let's go on here. All right, how about workers? Now, in the first century, the slaves were the workers. Roman citizens didn't work. So when you read slaves, he's talking about the workers. Okay, so workers, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Wow, that's an amazing text. Have you ever considered the fact that God ultimately is your master. Ultimately, he's the one you report to. And yeah, you may look at your dysfunctional boss and think, well, gee, he's unfair, he doesn't understand, he's mean, he's cruel, he's insensitive, all those things. But guess what? God has put you there. And he's put the master there. He has a purpose. Your job's to submit and do. Now, there's a limit to this. You know what the limit is? We see it in the, in the book of Acts. You submit under dysfunctional authority to the limit of when they ask you to violate Scripture. That's the limit. But up to that limit, you submit. You do. If they ask you to lie, you don't lie. Okay? But you work hard. You faithfully serve them. You look out for their interest. You don't look out for your own interest. How many of you made the, have ever said the statement, what's in it for me? Come on. All of you have. We've all said it. That is not biblical thinking. That is base principles of the world in action. We should never be concerned about what's in it for me. We should be concerned about Christ and living based on him. All right, so let me go down to good results. Good results flow from wise practices that are rooted in sound theology. You want to be, do what God's called you to do according to his will and his ways. You must be sound theologically. Your view of God. Now, some of you may be reacting to this. I know there's a whole stream out there that says, I don't need doctrine, I just need Christ. Well, that is built on a presupposition that you can separate Christ from doctrine. And I don't know how to support that in Scripture. Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the epitome of the Word of God. He is the epitome of sound doctrine. You know Christ. If you really know him, you will know sound doctrine. So good results flow from wise practice that are rooted in sound theology. And a couple of Proverbs there for you to consider. Who wants wealth and honor in life? Anybody want wealth, honor, and life? Anybody want that? Well, it comes from humility and the fear of the Lord. Sound theology. Who wants uh, life, prosperity, and honor? Anybody want that? Well, it comes from righteousness. The things that you want in life come from knowing the creator of life. Well, let me just wrap this up. I have a chart in there. It's basically showing you a contrast of 
biblical sound, biblical thinking versus worldly thinking on various issues like, for example, financial matters. The world's way of thinking basically is being a consumer. How many of you have been called a consumer? How many of you think you're a consumer? Most of you probably think yourself a consumer because Wall Street says you're a consumer. Do you understand that? When you watch financial news, they're speaking lies to a large degree to you. Where I've gotten with my own watching of, of these news programs is sometimes I am so upset at listening to their false doctrine, I can't listen to it anymore. You know, so I've, I've actually stopped listening to a lot of them, so now I'm just watching Rangers baseball. That's much better. Yeah, I've never watched Rangers baseball before. I've always, when I work out in the morning, I always watch the business news, and I'm just finding it's just so bad. It's just so full of mammon worship. It's so full of false doctrine, I just can't watch it. Even Fox Business is full of that. And I've, I've got some interesting quotes. I mean, there's one time one of the Fox Business commentators was saying, you know, you don't let your ethics get in the way here. You just make decisions to make money. Oh, okay, is that the way you make money? You just do whatever you got to do. So, see, they're all driven about money and consumption. Biblically, we're about stewardship. Let me ask you one question before I close. How much is enough? How much is enough? Huh? How much is enough? You need whatever it is that you need to do what you're called to do. That's what you need. Most of us say, I just need as much as I can get so I can give to the kingdom. That's a mammon worship thing. I've never seen anybody, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who said that, who really was built on Christ. It was a cover for their mammon worship. The reality is you only need what you need to do what you're called to do. That's all you need. Okay, so let's go ahead and conclude here. The global financial crisis is a symptom of something. The failed policies of financial regulators and government officials are symptoms. The root issue is the increasing rejection of God, the creator, by the inhabitants of this planet. This is bad theology that leads to bad consequences. Without a sound view of Christ, we have no ethical compass and therefore no wise way to live. The solution is Christ. The inhabitants of planet Earth need to individually turn to Christ and repent. That's you and me. By the way, wherever there's unsound theology in us, we need to repent. Repent means to change your mind. It means to change your worldview. Your worldview is off. And everyone here has got a flawed worldview on some level. If we had a worldview meter and could test all of us, you know, we'd all test out at various points. Whatever level of deficiency in our worldview is, we need to continually be submitting to repentance in those areas. So when I read repent, don't think, well, I've already repented. No, you haven't repented. You haven't begun to repent. We're going to spend the rest of our lives repenting, getting lined up with God's thinking. Okay, so we need to repent and grow up in Christ. By the way, that's the evidence of repentance is growth. If you don't see somebody growing, you don't see somebody alive, right? Okay, so that our lives will be based on Christ. Then we will have sound theology, driving sound philosophy, which will lead to wise values, principles, and practices. The result will be economic, political, ecclesiastical, and familial blessings. As a people, we must stop making up our own rules that are generally in rebellion against God. We must stop doing our will according to our ways. We must humbly turn to God to do his will according to his ways. Only God's values will enable us to rule this world. And only people who are empowered by the Spirit can really exercise those values properly. And only then can we truly solve the world's financial crisis. But guess what? We can do it. So may God give us grace to do it. Father, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you for Christ who is the foundation, the starting point, the reason for existence, the purpose for existence, the means for existence, the one who gives us life and breath and everything, the one that gives us the reason for getting up in the morning and doing whatever it is we do. Give us grace to embrace him in all his fullness and to repent of every area of unsound thinking in us. And may we line up with you, your will and your ways, and be your servants for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. May you have grace to do that.